With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Tom here. And before we get into this episode of the Spiked Podcast, I'd just like to say a huge thank you to everyone who's donated to our Christmas appeal so far. Without you, we simply wouldn't be here. So thank you so much for your generosity. If you haven't donated yet, then please do consider giving Spiked a donation this Christmas or even setting up a monthly donation for the new year. Anything you can give really is greatly appreciated. And we've even got a special limited time offer for our readers and listeners this festive period. So if you give Spiked a donation of £50 or more between now and the 1st of January 2019, we'll send you a free signed copy of Brendan O'Neill's new book, Anti-Woke. So to find out more, just head to spiked-online.com and click on the big red donate button in the top right of the homepage. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me today are Spike's deputy editor and host of the Last Orders podcast, Tom Slater. Hello, hello. And Spike columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Today on the podcast, we're talking unrepresentative democracy, the Twitter mobbing of Kevin Hart and whether Russia is behind the Gilets Jaunes movement. Just a word of warning, we're recording this on Wednesday morning, the day of Theresa May's confidence vote. So by the time this comes out, who knows what will have happened. We might have a new PM. Brexit could be over. There could be another referendum. Who the hell knows? Anyway, on with the show. And when he says about parliamentary sovereignty, the people are the sovereign to put the representatives in a parliament. And we made our decision. We know why we made it. I know you say we're thick up north. The people voted and they have to get on with it. Sorry, you have... Your job is to represent the public. The people who elect you, start doing your job. If you don't like it, clear off. A YouGov poll for the Sunday Times revealed that 73% of the public believe the current political parties do not represent their views. So how has our supposedly representative democracy become so unrepresentative of the public? Now, I think this is a really important question because as Brexit is making its way through Parliament, it's increasingly becoming clear that that chasm between the public and their supposed representatives is is almost more insurmountable than we ever thought. Now, we we all knew at the referendum that 75% of MPs voted remain and 52% obviously the voting public voted to leave but it's becoming more and more striking day by day that not only do these individual MPs not really represent their constituents many of them voting against the express wishes of their constituents by either backing May's deal pushing for a second referendum all else Um, but even just these political parties that's why this Sunday Times poll was so interesting and also when you kind of take a step back from the front you look at some of the information that's coming out I mean if you look at even like YouGov's political tracker of best prime minister, you know, don't know has been on about a five week winning streak, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it's just one of those things which I think is, is worth, you know, in the day to day discussion about Brexit and backstops and all the technical issues and all the gaming of what might happen next. I think that underlying point that um, Brexit has proven that the political parties don't represent us at a precise time in which the future of democracy is actually at stake, I think is something that we need to take very seriously. Ella? The Sunday Times polling was interesting, but it also, I can't say it, but it was surprising. Mm. I mean, especially the 
poll that showed that half of voters think that politics is broken. I mean, this is something that we've known people feel mm. for decades. Before Brexit happened, before the kind of tumultuousness of the last two years, the biggest issue for British politics was apathy. And I remember when we were campaigning for Article 50 a number of years ago, talking to people up and down the country, uh, and they were saying, yeah, but no one's ever going to actually do it, are they? There was this kind of deep set sense that politicians were never going to be able to stand up for what they're meant to do. People have not for a very long time believed in the divide of Tories and Labour, have had any faith in these parties. And so <laughs> it just seems utterly bizarre that when that's so clear mm. that the parties then continue to prove voters right, that they can't be trusted. I think it's interesting as well, like as you say, that the fact that Brexit seems to have sped up the process of disintegration in a way, despite the fact that both parties are still there, you know, the Tories are still in power, it's all kind of underneath the surface, everything is kind of crumbling. So even before this YouGov poll, there was a analysis that Sir John Curtis put out from um, National Centre for Social Research in, um, surveys, which found that 44% of people identify very strongly with either Leave or Remain and only 9% of people identify very strongly with Labour and the Tories. Mm. So we are seeing this kind of repolarization of politics around the issue of Brexit and outside the political party because it felt like at the last general election there was a kind of sense that that shift was taking place within the party structure you know you had more and more kind of middle class remainers moving towards the Labour Party and you had more um, blue collar leave voters and um, bolting for the Conservatives that was the election in which you know for, amazingly the Conservatives won Mansfield and <laughs> Labour won Chelsea but what's quite clear is that structure cannot hold you know whilst there was probably hopes on both sides of that discussion that the parties could re-energise themselves off the back of Brexit because they are so still so divided because they are still so feeble because they just lack proper roots in society now it's quite clear that they can't represent that divide and that's what I think you're seeing reflected in all of this polling and I think it doesn't help that you know for the most part they are the majority remain parties especially the the Labour Party which has had this policy towards Brexit of constructive ambiguity which meant that they were able to retain a number of areas that um, voted leave. Seven out of ten Labour voting constituencies voted leave. And, you know, the number of Labour leave MPs is about, what, five or six max? So for them, I mean, it's particularly acute for them. But even for the for the Tories, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not going to back no deal. And some of them are even eyeing up a Norway option or a second yeah. referendum. Nobody's even <laughs> bothering to, you know, fulfil their manifesto commitments, let alone um, actually represent what the public want. Well, it's interesting what you say about Labour, Fraser, because, I mean, the Tories are, at the moment, kind of, essentially, though they're bleating about Brexit, they are basically remain in relation to the fact that they're selling out Brexit. And the opposition party uh, is even more mm, remain yeah. than the party in power. Uh, and I was reading, you know, check Twitter to see what people are talking about. I saw this very prominent Labour activist um, write, a tweet saying that we shouldn't have even a second referendum that the first referendum was just weeks of bigotry and that another process of having weeks of bigotry was uh, a terrible prospect and it sort of it made me think about the fact that most of the MPs if not all I think deep down in their hearts wish that the referendum never had happened certainly among Labour MPs um, really regretted this ever happened it shows that the idea about referendums and opinions about referendums and trusting the people hasn't really changed. I mean, 73 years ago, uh, Labour Prime Minister Clement Attlee said uh, when Churchill was proposing to have a referendum at that time to 
kind of prolong his position in power. Clement Attlee said, I could not consent to the introduction into our national life of a device so alien to all our traditions as the referendum, which has only too often been the instrument of Nazis and fascism. Now, obviously, that was a historically <laughs> contextual comment, mm. but you cannot but help draw comparisons with the kind of discussions about referendums now. I mean, yeah, 73 years later, a few months ago, Lucy Powell, prominent anti-Brexit Labour MP, says uh, that it's very clear that complex issues do not take well to referenda. So, I mean, it's very obvious that most MPs just think that the idea of going to the people in the form of a referendum or anything else is something alien, as Clement Attlee says, something totally, uh, you know, conducive to kind of terrible behaviour like Nazism. You know, this is a dangerous concept for them. It's interesting because no one actually particularly contested the idea of referendums themselves in, in any meaningful way, you know, with the slew of referendums around mm. Scottish independence, around um, alternative vote. the alternative vote, even the previous, you know, devolution referendums 10 years before that, because actually the results were sufficiently comfortable that nothing yeah. really changed. Whereas now the Brexit vote has happened and I don't think we're ever going to see another referendum again in Britain in our lifetime, quite <laughs> frankly, unless it's uh, one that is asking us to vote for Remain again. Mm. And it's, it's interesting now that we're getting to this kind of crunch point in um, relation to the withdrawal agreement and everything else. And we really are coming to the surface seeing why that referendum was so important in the first place because of how unrepresentative our representative democracy is. And I think the thing that we need to remember is that's probably always been a tension, actually. You know, the history of representative democracy is one that was kind of built on the defeat of the more radical forces in British politics, you know, during the Civil War, the levellers, the more radically democratic faction who were eventually crushed by Cromwell's forces. You know, they wanted a democracy that was more direct that was responsive to what people wanted rather this idea that um, MPs are there to kind of lead by example to do what needs to be done even if it's not what we want and it was interesting actually when article 50 was going through parliament that you saw Edmund Burke was suddenly being <laughs> quoted at length by people across the house you know and that again was that big schism between himself and Tom Paine was the idea is Burke's idea being that um, your MP is um, not your flatterer he is your guide you know and it's just interesting how obviously that's come back to the fore. And none of this is to say that, you know, we need to throw out representative democracy and do everything by lot and by referenda. Of course not. But nevertheless, I think what we've seen amongst our elected representatives, um, that Burkean idea, you know, that they're here to be our betters has certainly won out. And because of that, it's pretty likely that Brexit isn't really going to happen. You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. Up next, Kevin Hart. Kevin Hart has resigned as the host of this year's Oscars after a series of tweets emerged where he used homophobic language. Ella, what's your take on this? It's an interesting one because I think we've seen this happen time and again and again and again. There's a real propensity for going back into... Uh, the past and dredging up pe what people have done, their kind of mistakes, and then holding them to account for it. Now, in the case of Kevin Hart, um, he made some homophobic tweets. He wrote some homophobic tweets. He also was known for a routine in which he joked about you know, rather unpleasant things like the fact that he really wished his son wasn't gay, that if his son was gay and started playing with a doll's house that he beat him up. This kind of uh, run-of-the-mill, sort of no-homo kind of stuff that I think unfortunately lots of comedians like him did used to use in the past initially it kind of came out and he said i've addressed this i've apologized for it um but then i think it was mi at midnight he came out and uh, said that he wasn't going to be the oscars host anymore he stepped down from that position 
this has sent the Oscars committee into mm. complete disarray. They don't know who to put up. They're faced with Jimmy Kimmel, who everyone says is incredibly boring. <laughs> I mean, the Oscars itself has become this weird pantomime of um, PC, of, you know, you have to have the exact right credentials in order to perform in it. That you don't, never mind being funny, entertaining, a good host, you have to be kind of squeaky clean. And, you know, no one likes homophobic jokes, I think, anymore, really. You, they might have done in 2010. Kevin Hart's pretty popular, but I think we've moved past that, but to kind of continuously pull up people's pasts and judge them as if human beings never change, as if they never learn, as if, you know, time doesn't move on, is a pretty kind of ridiculous thing to do. It's it's a really nasty dynamic as well, because it's just become the reflex now, you know, um, around the same time as the Kevin Hart thing, this um, college football star called Kyler Murray at the University of Oklahoma. He just won this big prize, so he was in the news, and instantly people just started going for his Twitter account, found that when he was 14, he used the word queer in a derogatory fashion or something. 14 years old um, and were pushing it on loads of news websites trying to you know punish him effectively nothing really happened in that instance because I think there was a moment where people paused and he was a child you know people say stupid things when they're young but it just the fact that that's the reflex now you know anyone gets announced for anything it's like oh let's see if they've ever done anything bad what Kevin Hart said about this when he stepped down from the Oscars thing was actually quite right so far as people do change people do make mistakes and you have to allow people the space to, you know, be wrong on occasion or to have been wrong in the past. I've heard a great phrase, which is a lot of us are all, we're cultural relativists, but historical absolutists, mm. you know, that we <laughs> we accept that people do things differently and have different attitudes in different parts of the world. But we don't realise that, you know, people in our own societies had different attitudes 10, mm. 20 years ago. And, you know, it, it, it was only really 20 years ago, if we're completely honest, that gay rights in Britain were fully legalised. And I remember, you know, even in my own lifetime, seeing attitudes to these things change. The idea that we're all born with the correct politics mm. is it, it, just for the birds, really, and that we, that we don't change, that we don't evolve, and we don't get better, hopefully. Some people get worse, obviously, <laughs> too. Watching reruns of Friends, that, you know, staple mm. of our <laughs> young life, uh, it's, it's rife with no homo jokes. I mean, every other scene with Chandler and Joey is about mm. oh we're not gay and so so you know <laughs> the idea that Kevin Hart was even an anomaly is yeah. a bit ridiculous um, and again you can accept that things move on and celebrate the fact that things move on but the idea that you then just sort of wipe out history is weird I mean we saw this in Britain uh, not with a comedian but with a aspiring politician Jared O'Mara which I was kind of thinking about when I was reading what was happening to Kevin Hart who is by all accounts a strange young man right but at the same time he uh, was elected as a Labour politician was sort of celebrated as a young disabled Labour politician and then got unceremoniously <laughs> taken down mm. and had his really his life destroyed and um, by people dredging up comments like him saying on social media sites like MySpace that Michelle McManus won Pop Idol because she was too fat that Dick and Dom the children's presenter should be bludgeoned to death with a blunt otter and that girls allowed the pop band um, should have an orgy with him he also said <laughs> things like fudge packers and stuff like that and he described the reason why he said it was because he was a frustrated young man ginger with a lisp who was picked on and so he used this kind of macho bravado ridiculous language in order to protect himself now fine this all happened 15 years before yeah. he came to politics that's yeah. the key thing i mean we are if you are saying that people have to be white as white and perfect from birth then we'll not have anyone in positions of power 
I think my favourite thing about the Jared O'Mara story was that some of this was on a Morrissey fan forum. Mm-hmm. So if you are a young, dejected <laughs> person, um, that's pre-social media, that's pre-social where everyone media. used to gather. That's where you had to talk about girls aloud. But um, no, it, I, I completely agree. And I think it's also the fact that we're holding people up to standards that, you know, no one can really maintain. And the problem with that is, I mean, we talk about now, obviously, you know, um, Kevin Hart isn't in politics. We take the Jared O'Mara example. We're always talking about how politicians are really fake really too manicured, you know, they're not real people, they've just been, you know, focus grouped to death, they're like robots, etc. Um, the more and more that people go dredging through someone's history as soon as they step into public life, you know, the more and more we expect this incredibly high standard, the more and more, as you were saying, Fraser, we project today's standards even into the past, the more you are going to get kind of empty suits, you know, in, in public life. It just becomes a pantomime where people have to pretend to be something that they're not in order to make sure that they can you know get through the day without a twitter storm and i think that 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 is really corrosive i don't want empty suits for celebrities either you know what the the thing that is entertaining about celebrities a lot of the time is is where things go wrong Mm. you know scandal scandal yeah their moral failings are something that we take quite a lot of delight in and long may that continue Spiked has no paywalls and no subscriptions. It's thanks to contributions from listeners and readers like you that keeps us fighting for freedom and democracy. If you'd like to make a donation, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the big donate button. Up next, Russia. For four weekends in a row, hundreds of thousands of protesters have taken to the streets of France. The protesters say they are angry about low wages, the high cost of living and an indifferent political class. But some in the media have a more simple explanation. Russia. Russian bots on social media are fueling people's anger and driving them out onto the streets. What do we make of this? It's hilarious. <laughs> I mean, this happens every time there's something that the political elite doesn't like. It's like, oh, it's Russia did it. I mean, the idea that, you know, France, which has a long history of, you know, political revolt and street protest, the only reason they turned out was because, according to one analysis, you know, there were 200 sock puppet accounts that started retweeting things furiously <laughs> is ridiculous. And it's just... Again, you know, you dig down into the claims that are being made, whether it was about um, social media bots and their activity during the Brexit referendum or in the Gilets jaunes protest or in relation to Trump, which is obviously a whole other matter. Um, And they say, no, 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 they're just there to amplify divisions. You know, we're not saying that they swung it. But the obsession with it, I think, does speak to the fact that um, the political class, uh, mainstream politicians, that they are looking for a kind of get out clause. They rather than try and reckon with the fact that you know, people are kicking off everywhere against mm. the political establishment. Russia is just a very neat way of being able to explain this stuff away. But it's it's reaching absurd heights now, I think. I was actually at the Gilets jaunes protest in, in Paris and, you know, meeting lots of people. And the idea that somehow their concerns were not real, that their frustrations with the political class even needed to be amplified by well, they've been kind Russian. of tweaked somehow you know exactly you know that they yeah of course they're angry but something set them off yeah. this one you know this one tweet or this one facebook post by a russian agent provocateur has um <laughs> has finally got them to put the vest on and, and go onto the streets it, it's it's so insulting so incredibly insulting and it's a really comforting delusion i think for you know the political class who are um quite rightly on the back foot a little bit at the moment it's really lazy as well. I mean, the Times reported that this organisation that sort of has trawled through thousands and thousands of accounts, new knowledge, um, came up with a conclusion that the Russian girl with all these bots was to amplify the message that there is a disconnect between French politicians and the working mm. class. 
What? <laughs> Russian bots didn't need to amplify that no, message. Exactly. The Gilets Jaunes are doing it perfectly well themselves. It's this kind of really bizarre and lazy way of sort of just saying this isn't actually real people doing this. It's like you say, it's just uh, it's just people being fed from Russia. I mean, and there have been fake photos being circulated. Um, I saw one of the, you know at the same time that OK Magazine ran this story about a woman having a terrible reaction to some hair dye. Her picture ended up alongside some tweets about the Gilets Jaunes with her hair. You know, you know. And and that always happens. That's the nature of social media is uncontrolled. People can spin lies. But look how beneficial social media has been for the Gilets Jaunes. I mean, there's largely, as we talked about last week on the podcast, um, non-party affiliated. This is people organizing together. And it's something really terrifying for especially European elites. The idea that, and especially for British elites, you know, the idea that uh, the masses who are upset with the way the current political system is working would come out on the streets. I mean, no, the way to suppress that is to use the Russia card. Of course, you know, as, as you say, Facebook and social media are facilitated, but that itself becomes an excuse for a lot of politicians. There's yeah. this big, um, you know, quote unquote analysis in BuzzFeed that purported to show how it was actually Facebook's algorithms that were driving the gilets jaunes. You know, yet another pitiful excuse for why people are angry no it's ridiculous and i don't think they'd realize how ridiculous they sound i remember when some of the reporting around the um, russian social media interventions into the um, u.s election 2016 and there was all of this focus on this one particular meme that was really popular which was of like um jesus arm wrestling satan or something and it was pro-trump somehow and you think do you realize what you sound like you know this kind of Brexit, Trump, now gilets jaunes, derangement syndrome mm. is so intense. And the other thing that they forget is the idea that Twitter is representative. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that if you just line up a load of accounts there to furiously retweet things, you're going to reach ordinary people is ridiculous. I mean, this is one of the things that was funny about the Trump election as well. And a study recently confirmed this. The people he was appealing to were the people least likely to be mm. on social media. And there was, lo and behold, um, earlier this year... Um, some economists from Stanford and Brown University found exactly this. He underperformed relative to former Republicans um, in relation to people who get all their news online, um, people who use social media regularly, because he appealed to rural people, you know, blue-collar people, as we know, a lot of older people as well. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that um, politicians and commentators, they live in this little bubble <laughs> where social media does drive all their debate. That is how they think about politics but it's not like that for many other people many people who work for a living don't have time to just stare at their phones all the time so it is i think it's it's ridiculous but i think part of it is bred of the very gap between these people and, and the public that these protests are expressing well you saw it in relation to the brexit vote i mean the whole discussion about russia being influential there there's about 10 million people in the uk who use twitter mm. that's 7.4 million people short of the yeah. amount of people who voted <laughs> for brexit so square that circle for me about how you know Twitter and Russia managed to win Brexit. But it's interesting, isn't it, about the kind of propensity for people to engage in conspiracy theories. The Russia conspiracy theory about, you know, kind of like tinfoil hat sort of mm. their controlling our thoughts thing. It it speaks to a kind of wider disillusionment with truth in politics and truth in public discourse. I remember post-Brexit, really soon after the referendum result was announced, there was lots of so-called Romaniacs talking about the fact that we live in a post-truth world. Yeah. But if you live in a post-truth world, then you can cook up any kind of rubbish about, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I'm sure Russia gets up to a lot of stuff. This is not kind of absolving Russia. The idea that it has a tap into the minds of every uh, British and French voter or activist is completely ridiculous. But isn't it interesting 
this kind of stuff gets such an outing today. There is such a, uh, an openness to this kind of mad conspiracy theory. Yeah, it's, it's pretty astonishing. I mean, the best example of this kind of conspiracy theorizing is the Observer's uh, Carol Cadwallader, who has been lavished with, you know, every journalistic award under the sun. And it's, it's worth pointing out, if anyone actually bothers to read her columns, that her current pet theory is that Julian Assange is the missing link between Russia, Brexit and Trump that he is coordinating things from his little cupboard in the Ecuadorian embassy. But he's delighted. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to the Spike podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating, a review, or even a donation? For your daily dose of Spiked, go to spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.